Rest easy, you temporary Jessicas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. What's the crack? How are you getting on? I'm going to open this week's podcast, ladies and gentlemen, with a piece of poetry. We haven't had a poem. We haven't had a poem in a while. Um, sometimes I read out poems that have been sent to me by very famous Hollywood celebrities, and we haven't had one in a while. Um, so this week I was sent a poem by Hollywood actor Jamie Dornan. So I'm going to read out his poem. It's called The Suntan Man. Clasp hands with the suntan man, his cankered ankles bandaged to a catamaran. The sun screams from his open mouth. Don't stare directly into the glaring flame. Don't get a suntan, you'll burn in the rain. Touch the nettles by the bus stop. The suntan man is dangling Panama from his wristwatch. His tonsils bounce like a comet. Collect your doll on a Wednesday. Buy the new lilt. Pour it on your balls. Watch it fizz. Thank you very much, Jamie Darnan, for taking time out of your busy Hollywood schedule to send us that lovely piece of poetry there. Thank you very much. So, here we are. Here we are. The last the last podcast of 2020. If you're a brand new listener, you're very welcome. Go listen to some older episodes, please. I always recommend that if you're brand new. Um, if you're If you're a regular listener, you know the crack. So this week's podcast is a blistering hot take. It's a batshit mental hot take that I've been researching for quite some time. It's conspiracy theory podcast, but you know me, when I do conspiracy theories, I make sure that it's heavily backed up by evidence. So that, yes, it's conspiracy, but it's incredibly plausible. So that's what this week's podcast is. But... I'll, we'll do a little intro first before we get on to the, the juicy, the juicy meat of the hot take. But last podcast of 2020. So I feel this, I feel this obligation to synopsize the year. And it's like, what, how the fuck do you do that? How the fuck do you do that? 2020 was ridiculous. 2020 was a fucking ridiculous year. Not because of what happened, but because it doesn't feel like a year. I don't know what to call it. What the fuck was that? That's all I can say. What the fuck was that? I, I literally... I haven't left my gaff in a year. Neither have most of ye. What the fuck was that? That's all I can say about 2020. I, I genuinely don't feel, feel as if a year has passed. I feel as, as if it is... December 2019. Genuinely. That's what it feels like. And how fucking mad is that? Um... If you're someone, one thing, do you know one thing I will say to you? At the start of the pandemic, start of uh, 2020, a lot of us made promises to, like, engage in these new creative projects or to to write a play or whatever the fuck. If, if you, here's the thing, if you said to yourself, fuck it, we're going into quarantine, I'm going to use, I'm going to finally do that thing that I've been putting off. I'm going to write that book, I'm going to write that play. I'm going to form that band. Whatever it was. If you didn't do it, that's fine. Okay? If you didn't do it, that's fine. Don't be at the end of 2020 with a feeling of, Oh fuck, I didn't do that thing I promised myself I would do. Starting new projects is terrifying. 
and really, really difficult. And at the start of the pandemic, we were like, oh, look at all this free time. Look at all this free time to fill up and do and fill with creative things. It wasn't really free time because it was very, very stressful free time in extraordinary circumstances. So therefore, that's not free time. That's insane time. And so to to have expected of yourself to perform at your best during 2020, that's an unrealistic expectation. Okay? So don't be hard on yourself. Whatever the fuck you did to cope with 2020, if you binged a lot of box sets, if that's what you did, then that's what you needed to do and that's the best thing for you. And don't be hard on yourself if you didn't do that big project that you decided to do. Whatever the fuck you did with your time, whatever filled your day, whatever helped you to cope, was the right thing for you. And I said that at the start of this pandemic. I said the only expectation that any of us should have from ourselves is to cope. Because the circumstances are extraordinary and extraordinarily stressful. So whatever way you coped, fair play to you. You did your fucking best. Don't be feeling like shit because you didn't write a play. Or whatever it was you promised yourself. Fuck that. Um, what can I what can I say to round up the year? Um, one positive I'll take from it, in which we can all collectively grow, is I'm th- I remember last March, February March, when the World Health Organization said we've got a pandemic. This is a big deal, and nobody living had experienced a pandemic before no, we hadn't experienced this and around february march it was really really genuinely existentially terrifying okay really really terrifying people were stockpiling food people were buying all the bread and toilet rolls there was panic when i would speak to people on the phone in march no matter who it was there was a real trepidation and terror and anxiety in people's voices a lot of people genuinely last march a lot of people genuinely entertained the idea that this was going to be the complete and utter collapse of society and by this time december that we would be like locked up in our fucking houses like some type of zombie apocalypse and a lot of people went through that phase of last March of genuinely thinking, fuck, this is the end of the world. This is going to be like Mad Max. Because when we get frightened, it's human to entertain worst case scenarios. And a lot of people entertained worst case scenarios. And you know what? It's a year later and it didn't happen. Now, if you're someone who has lost family members to covid or has has you know if covid has genuinely devastated your life and for some people it has i'm really sorry i'm not speaking i'm not speaking for your experience right but for most people and people who i speak to it it hasn't the, the, what has happened is not has not been conducive with our worst case scenario fears back in march so the collective fear and anxiety that had people buying all the toilet paper, it didn't happen. And that there, I think, is a good thing 
because what it does is it it tests your fears it tests your irrationality and from that you get you, you can really grow from that as a person if you know what i mean and to reiterate i'm not minimizing the impact of coronavirus and the misery it caused i'm just saying the worst case scenario of societal collapse which a lot of people entertained didn't happen and yeah you've got your fucking anti-mask dickheads but what you also saw was a lot of caring a lot of compassion a lot of people willing to help out a lot of cooperation you saw a lot of of positives of humanity which was it really fucking encouraging too and i suppose what you get to learn from 2020 is resilience against challenges we were all really resilient we all coped in some way we coped day to day with a scenario that if you'd suggested it to us two years ago as a possible scenario we'd just go no the world's fucked everything's going to be on fire it'll be like the stone age do you know what i mean but we didn't we coped we coped and we got on with it and everyone was massively inconvenienced but we coped and there's there's great growth in that I speak a lot about the importance of failure, right? The, I'm always chatting about, people say to me, what's the most important part about art? And I always say, failure, embracing failure. And I want to tell you now, you know, how did, how did I learn that? How did I learn the importance of, of failure? I learned it from direct experience, right? And I'm, I'm going to move away from COVID now and speak about something less important and more selfish but it was important to me in terms of worst case scenarios and learning about fear of failure so if 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 you're an artist not even an artist if you're somebody right who has to set goals and then achieve those goals whatever the fuck it is setting a goal and then achieving that goal a big goal in my job I have to do that a lot. I have to like write fucking books, write TV series, big projects that require me 100% to motivate myself and nobody else can do it. I have to do it. Anyone who has to do that will tell you the biggest obstacle is always your fear of failing. If you're afraid of failing, afraid of the humiliation of failure, if 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 you're if you're that way, you 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 tend to you fantasize about the worst case scenario of failure and that then stops you from trying. So that's the biggest enemy of anybody who has to do something that requires the setting and achieving of goals. The fear of failing and that will stop you doing anything. And I used to be, I used to be really crippled by that. I used to be really crippled by the fear and humiliation of failing. And as a result there's a shitload of art that never got created all through my 20s there's songs that were never written there's tv series that were never made there's books i never wrote there's a bunch of shit that i never ever made because i was too scared of what if it fucking failed and what got me over that is i had the the biggest failure of my fucking life the worst case scenario happened in about 2016 when uh, we had this TV series called The Almost Impossible Game Show on ITV, right? We as in the, the Rubber Bandits, right? And it was like, it was a comedy game show thing and 
it was fucking great crack. I used to love doing it. I used to love writing. You know, I'd be writing every week, writing the fucking script for it. Then we'd go and do all the jokes in a studio. And it was quite popular. It was this... It was popular fucking, uh, like, TV show on ITV. And it was great crack. And then, in 2016, I think, the Almost Impossible Game Show, our TV show, got bought by MTV USA and commissioned by MTV USA, which at that point was the biggest thing that had ever, ever happened to me in my entire career. So my whole fucking career in TV and entertainment, this was the big moment. Fucking MTV USA, American fucking MTV, MTV One, whatever the big channel was, had commissioned our TV show, and I'm talking primetime American TV, as in me having a TV show that people in fucking Nebraska and Colorado watch at 8pm on fucking MTV. Millions and millions of people. It would have been huge. Game changing. It it was going to be on after the Nick Cannon show on MTV in America and they'd they'd given us two seasons. I I was getting ready to move to Los Angeles. Put it that way. Spent a whole year working on it, writing it, making it. It went out on MTV. Right? Everyone had been told, Rubber Bandits have a fucking TV series on MTV USA. Holy fuck. Holy fuck. And we thought they were just a novelty act. And here they are now with the TV series on MTV in America. Wow, they've proved us wrong. And it went out and it got cancelled after one episode. And that right there in my industry, that is the worst thing that can happen. That's the worst thing. That is the biggest possible failure. Is... To be given your one huge chance, massive chance, mainstream American TV, and for it to get cancelled after one episode. That's such a huge failure that people don't touch you. You're not spoken about. Like, when that TV show got cancelled, the people I made it with didn't even email me. It was such a massive, huge, embarrassing failure that it meant that... Like, you're not even going to be spoken about in TV circles. You can't even apply for a TV job because the failure is so colossally huge that it's the worst thing that can happen. And the worst thing happened to me in my job. The big the big one shot at American TV cancelled after one show. It happened. The worst possible thing. All my fears, everything I would have been terrified of that kept me, which was... Here you go, you've gotten to the finish line, you've done it, and then it fucking flops. And it's humiliating. And everyone's asking, where's your TV show? I read in the paper that you have this big TV show in America, where is it? So, the worst possible thing happened. Was it as bad as how I fantasised it would be? Having spent all this time worrying about, what if something gets cancelled? What if I'm What if I am publicly and massively a failure? It happened. Was it as bad as my fantasy? No, it was not. It was unpleasant. It was unpleasant. I'm not going to say it was nice. But it certainly wasn't. The colossal, terrifying, awful thing that I fantasised about for years that I could never allow happen and that prevented me from getting work done. And that right there, I'm actually glad it happened four years on. Because it made me immune to the fear of failure. It made me understand that failure is just something. It's something that probably might happen. And you just have to go against it anyway. And it fucking freed me. 
And if I'm being honest, the TV show we made was shit. It was really, really shit. The jokes were fucking shit. The format was shit. Yeah, I was going to be on MTV. Yeah, people in Nebraska and all over that would know who the fucking rubber bandits are. But they'd know us for a pile of shit. It was a pile of shit. And then when that happened, all of a sudden, I got over the initial disappointment of a a huge show being cancelled. And I felt this incredible freedom. And then what do I do? I write a fucking book in a year. I started this podcast. I did my BBC series, which I'm way, way happier with. Something that I consider to have integrity. I don't think the Impossible Game Show had much integrity. So, it, it also completely changed my definition of what success is. My definition of success back then was like, oh, fuck it, man, getting a, getting a TV show on MTV. But is that really a success if I'm not happy with the work? But my books are a success. This podcast is a success. Why? Because I love them. I love making them and I'm proud of the work and I earn a living doing them. So therefore, for me personally, they're a success. If someone else doesn't like them, that's fine. That's their business. But I actually really, really love what I'm doing. And I can't say that about some of that TV stuff and some of the rubber banded stuff, you know. It actually allowed me as an artist now to be a million times fucking happier than I was back then. I'm fully independent and I'm consistently making work that I love. I love this podcast. I love writing books. I love doing my BBC stuff. The Blind Boy stuff. I fucking love it. I'm so much happier. And it only exists because I had such a massive, massive failure and was able to see it wasn't pleasant. But my fantasy about how terrible it was going to be, that's not real. That's not fucking real. So, the reason I'm telling that story, I suppose, is... It's... it's That's how I'm feeling about 2020. That's how I'm feeling about 2020. We all fantasised about catastrophic worst-case scenarios... With the pandemic, we all fantasised about catastrophic worst-case scenarios. But the reality is, it was deeply unpleasant. But we coped, and it wasn't like how we thought it would be. And from that, collectively, there's real strength in that. There's a real... you 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 can strengthen and grow from 2020. And it can chill you out. And you can... you can go... Do you know what? No matter what happens, you can actually fucking cope. So that's 2020 for me. And apologies now for making that about myself and talking about me fucking me and my bloody MTV series as if that's it that's that's not important. That's really not important. But the reason I spoke about it is that I I what I learned from it is important. What I learned from it is important. Alright? I can I fucking I, I, I confronted the dragon, lads. We all have Carl Jung, I suppose we'll call it our shadow. We all have this dragon, this demon inside us that we're terrified of, that doesn't exist, but we're terrified of it, and we behave as if it is real, and we plan our lives to avoid this whether it's fear of failing, fear of humiliating, fear of letting people down. I fucking confronted the dragon and realised that, like, man, this dragon's only a goal. 
I was giving far too much credit to this dragon. Just a fucking lizard with a gammy leg. It'll be fine. And I'm, I'm free of the dragon's shadow. Sounds like I'm after doing a lot of fucking acid now. But uh, I say acid, actually. I'm going to use that as a segue. Or a sieg. If you've ever seen it being spelt, man. I have saw the word segue spelt. S-E-G-U-E. I've saw it spelt for years and thought it was called sieg. And then found out when I started writing books. It's segue. S-E-G-U-E. But as a sieg. I'm going to begin by talking about the north of Ireland in the 1970s. And it's going to end with LSD. Alright. This is. This is a deep dive of an episode. So. In the early 1970s right. The the summer of 1971. In the period. In which the start of what we commonly refer to as the troubles. In the north of Ireland. A secret. Division of the British army was created. Called the military reaction force. Okay. Now this is the British army. These are British army army officers. Who were wearing plain clothes. They weren't wearing uniforms. They didn't carry with them any British army insignia. They were pretty much told that. Even if they'd have been caught. They'd have been disowned by the army. And the military reaction force. Their job in 1971. In the north of Ireland. Was to literally behave like terrorists to give you some examples the the military reaction force there were british army lads in plain clothes they'd get into a car with a machine gun and drive around a catholic civilian area in belfast or in derry and they would do drive-by shootings and kill random civilians civilians with families these these are not not people in the ira Members of the British Army would wear plain clothes and do drive-by shootings on random civilians in Catholic areas and kill them and murder them. And this isn't conspiracy, this is a fact. The Military Reaction Force, you can look this up. BBC Panorama did a documentary on them a couple of years back. So this is fact. It is, it is a fact that the British Army had a secret unit who used to dress up in plain clothes and, and murder random civilians. Okay? Irish people listening to this are going to be shocked. I don't know what the fuck the British listeners are thinking, but this is real. They, they wouldn't just shoot and murder random civilians. They, they were involved in the bombing of a pub in 1971. The UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, bombed a pub called McGurk's. That was frequented by Catholic people. 17 people were injured in the bombing. The military reaction force of the British army were heavily involved in helping the UVF to blow up a pub. And to target and kill civilians. Now now this is all real early days in what we call the Troubles. The, the provisional IRA were set up in 1969. So by 1971 they were quite a young organisation. And this is this is before uh, Bloody Sunday in the Bogside in Derry, which was 1972. If you don't know, Bloody Sunday was where Catholic people mar- were marching for their civil rights. And British soldiers, I believe they were paratroopers. So these are soldiers in, in 
full military uniform, they they shot thirteen. They, they they shot fourteen people, killed them dead. Fourteen innocent people, uh, quite publicly. A lot of people know Bloody Sunday, but Bloody Sunday was a lot. A lot of young people in the north of Ireland joined the Provisional IRA after nineteen seventy two, having witnessed the atrocity of Bloody Sunday. But before Bloody Sunday, the Provisional IRA they didn't have a huge amount of members, and they were quite a young organisation. So why then in the summer of 1971 do you have a secret unit of the British Army, the Military Reaction Force, a secret plainclothes unit killing random civilians? Why, Why is that the case when the IRA, the provisional IRA, aren't even a thing as such by 1971? It's only a few, a small amount of members. Like even this, and in June of 1972... The Provisional IRA were going to have secret talks with the British government around a ceasefire, right, in June of 1972. The, the Provisional IRA were, were actually, and this is before the, the huge amount of the troubles kicked off. This is before any of the massive bombings all through the 70s and bombings in, in mainland Britain. So on June 1972... The IRA were ready to sit down with the British government for secret talks and they announced a ceasefire. And on that day, the military reaction force, who were the plainclothes British army officers, on that day, the military reaction force did a drive-by shooting on some innocent, unarmed Catholic civilians at a bus stop. So why are the British army in 1971 creating a covert unit whereby they're wearing plain clothes and killing civilians what the why what the fuck is that about and the members themselves said that if if they were ever caught even by the police in the north of ireland if they were caught the british army would disown them they would disown them what the fuck is that about basically the british army were pretending to be either the uvf or the uda the the British army were pretending to be Protestant gangs who were shooting random unarmed civilians in Catholic areas to create a sectarian war. Now why the fuck would they want that? Why, why would the British army want a sectarian civil war? Well, quite simple. It, it means the people in... The goal of the Provisional IRA was to achieve a united Ireland for Britain to leave the north of Ireland, for the north of Ireland to no longer be under British control, which meant that the IRA, if their target was the British forces or politically the British government, and by the British army shooting up civilians, what that does is it creates sectarian war. The, The MRA were told to behave like terrorists, to commit actual acts of terror, and... It, 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 what it does is it, it, it was trying to force the IRA to retaliate in a sectarian fashion and to then begin shooting up Protestant areas and murdering Protestant civilians to create chaos. All of a sudden, no one's talking about the British Army anymore and then what the British Army hoped to create was get the Catholics and the Protestants 
are the nationalists and the unionists get them killing each other create a civil war now why would you want to do that it creates chaos it creates uncertainty but most importantly from the british government perspective it creates the the optics of an unsolvable problem and then it makes the british army look like peacekeepers it creates the narrative that sure jesus northern ireland is mad all they're doing is killing each other so if a reasonable person in 1971 in the republic of ireland in the north in england in scotland if a reasonable person in 1971 was to say well why is britain in the north of ireland why can't britain leave the north of ireland if there's that much shit going on well when you have sectarian civil war now a reasonable person can't really ask that question because the answer is how could we leave if we left there would be chaos we must stay to maintain peace it completely shifts and changes the narrative and the thing is the if you look at some of the the british media propaganda from the time and the, the real sad thing is it worked look at the british media cartoons and propaganda from the 1970s and what they show is depicting the unionists and the nationalists right catholic and protestants still depicting them both as ape-like irish caricatures hurling rocks at each other with a paratrooper in the middle trying to maintain peace but they effectively unionist people in 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 the north identify as british and the catholics were identifying as irish but the british press was just portraying everybody as bog bog fucking monkey paddy cross-eyed mix even the unionists the british press was going they're all just fucking uncontrollable mix who won't stop killing each other and now we have to send in the paratroopers to maintain peace and it creates a narrative that now the problem isn't British occupation. It's sectarian civil war. And Britain must remain in order to maintain peace. Now I'm not suggesting that sectarianism wasn't a thing. Sectarianism was, was a huge problem. But the British army were like. How can we make it way way worse? How can we make the sectarianism? How can we start a civil war? How can we start a civil fucking war where they're killing each other? And th- this this isn't conspiracy. This is real. Like, and, and This is the third time I've said this because it's so absurd because you're conditioned to think that oh, but the, there aren't the British army, the good ones. They're an army. That's the army of, of a state and they must obey rules. And they obey the rules of uh, the Geneva Convention. They would never dress up in plain clothes and murder civilians. Yes, they did. The British fucking army did that. The British army, paid for by the taxpayer of Britain, they did that covertly. That's a thing that happened. And and this fact that I'm saying, this isn't even the mad part of this podcast. This is the this is the the least shocking bit that I'm trying to put in to set up the the much more ridiculous things that I'm about to link it up with. So how does all this happen? This happens because a very senior British officer 
in the north of Ireland from 1970 to 1972 was a fellow by the name of, of Brigadier Frank, Frank Kitson. Okay, Brigadier uh, Frank Kitson. And Frank Kitson, who formed the military action force, it was his brainchild, it was his idea. Um, Frank Kitson made his name in Kenya in the 50s, right, during the Mau Mau rebellions. Kenya is a former British colony. In the 1950s in Kenya, Kenya wanted independence from Britain. So a group formed called the Mau Mau, who were Kenyan rebels, a little bit like the IRA, who wanted independence. And Frank Kitson was in the British Army at the time in a position of power. Now, I did a podcast on the Mau Mau Rebellion uh, a a few weeks back. In the Mau Mau Rebellions in Kenya, the uh, Britain established massive concentration camps, huge concentration camps where thousands died. Barack Obama's grandfather was one of the one of the people in these concentration camps. He was sexually tortured by British soldiers for years. The British did some very fucked up things in Kenya. But Frank Kitson was in the British army in Kenya and he kind of so the 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 theory of let's get the British army to pr- to behave like terrorists and to kill civilians and wear plain clothes. He developed these theories while in Kenya. He did this against the Mau Mau in Kenya. And he wrote a book on it in 1960, which I've been reading, called Gangs and Counter Gangs. He wrote another book in 1971 called Low Intensity Operations about Northern Ireland. But Frank Kitson basically wrote this book called Gangs and Counter Gangs, which was, if you're a colonial power, or any power, and you have a rebellion, well, here is how you, in a very illegal way, take the rebellion down. If you have one group who want independence, delegitimize their call for independence by inventing a fake gang, or a pseudo-gang as he called it, to engage in open warfare with them, and draw them out, and delegitimize them, and destabilize them. Frank Kitson invented this way of counterinsurgency, it'd be called now. Frank Kitson invented it in uh, 1960, based on his experiences with the Mau Mau. And he wrote the book Gangs and Counter Gangs, which went on to be hugely influential with the British Army and also in America. It's, it's a way for a quote-unquote democracy to behave illegally to 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 murder and kill civilians while doing it all covertly um so i've been i've been reading frank kitson's books i've been reading gangs and counter gangs and then i've been looking up you know how influential was this book this 1960 book who read it who took it on board and it turns out it was of huge interest and studied heavily by the fbi and cia um, in particular, they used Kitson's methods to try and take down the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers were an organization founded in, in, I think it was about 1965 or 66, in San Francisco by members of the African American community as a way to defend their community against police brutality. And the Black Panthers basically said, We're American citizens, we have a Second Amendment right to bear arms. We consider the police to be a brutal force, so we're going to arm ourselves 
and patrol our own community to keep the black community safe from the brutality of police. That was the Black Panther organisation. But they were also a political organisation. They were anti-fascist, they were anti-racist, anti-capitalist. They were, they were socialist. The Black Panthers not, weren't just doing patrols with guns, but they were, they were offering, they were setting up free breakfast programs for kids living in poverty. They were educating the black community about uh, capitalism, about how capitalism is an oppressive structure about educating the black community about how they could be freed through socialism. And the Black Panthers were seen as an, a huge threat to the Amer- American hegemony by the likes of the FBI. They were... The FBI were particularly worried about middle-class white people having a favourable view of the Black Panthers, viewing the Black Panthers as being legitimate, viewing their struggle as legitimate, viewing their calls for equality as being legitimate. The the FBI did not want the white voter base to legitimise the Black Panthers. So the FBI investigated, among, among other things, Frank Kitson's methods, his book Gangs and Counter Gangs, and set about trying to dismantle the Black Panthers in a very similar way to how the military reaction force tried to dismantle the IRA in the north of Ireland. Now again, are you thinking, blind boy, is this conspiracy theory? It's not, because I have here a New York Times, the New York fucking Times, which is a, a legitimate newspaper. I found an article from May 8th, 1976, which clearly states the Federal, Federal Bureau of Investigation carried out a secret nationwide effort to destroy the Black Panthers, including attempts to stir bloody gang warfare between the Panthers and other groups and to create factional splits within the party, according to the staff report of the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence Activities. The Bureau's efforts, part of the COINTELPRO or counterintelligence program, contributed to a climate of violence in which four Black Panthers were shot to death, the report says. So the FBI had this, they had a program called COINTELPRO and this was, it was a way to take down left-wing organisations but in particular black nationalist organisations in the US. And the article goes on to say that like they tried to start divisions between Eldridge Cleaver and Huey P. Newton and they also they started a gang warfare between in Chicago between the Black Panthers and a street gang, an armed street gang called the Blackstone Rangers. So th- th- this article that I'm reading, the, the New York Times article, it's 1976. The majority of the actions, the COINTELPRO FBI program, happened in the 1960s, right? And this, the reason this report is from 1976 is that there was a thing called the what the fuck was it called? The Select Committee, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Services. Hold on, I get it right. No, that's right. So it was the US Senate, um, a committee to investigate and hold to account the likes of the FBI and the CIA to try and see what they were getting up to. And some of the findings are fucking mad. 
Um, it says here, the, re- the report portrays a campaign in which the Bureau used a legion of informers, sometimes as provocateurs and close cooperation with local police, anti-radical squads, to sow confusion, fear and dissension among the Panthers. Cartoons attacking them, purportedly from rival groups, were distributed to aggravate antagonisms. Stories were planted in newspapers and television outlets to put the Panthers and their supporters in a bad light. Bogus messages were sent to cause rifts between the party and white leftist supporters. And that was a big thing. To portray the Panthers as being violent and also to portray them as... If if white leftist or middle class white groups were supporting the Black Panthers, the FBI basically would fake notes that suggested that the Panthers considered all white people to be evil and when the Panthers got their gold they would murder all white people and the FBI wanted white groups to believe this about the Panthers so they created all these fake notes and fake memos and all this stuff to sow this dissent and to create distrust and this FBI this this program was known as COINTELPRO and this report on it said it would be intolerable in a democratic society even if all the targets had been involved in violent activity. But COINTELPRO went far beyond that. The unexpressed major premise of the programmes was that a law enforcement agency has the duty to do whatever is necessary to combat perceived threats to the existing social and political order. So what does that sound similar to? The shit that Frank Kitson was doing in 1971 in in the north of Ireland a lot of these actions the COINTELPRO actions by the FBI were happening in from about 1966 onwards Frank Kitson wrote his book Gangs and Counter Gangs which was a, a publicly available a manual for intelligence services and for the military about how to dismantle uh, how to dismantle groups that are looking for independence or sovereignty and what what, what's happening with the military reaction force in the north of Ireland and what the FBI are doing to the Black Panthers it's the exact same shit it's the exact same shit if if the Black Panthers are looking are asking for civil rights and are trying their best to say look we want civil rights we want to defend our community from violence these are we want to give free lunches and free breakfast to children our demands are reasonable Right? The FBI was like, fuck, all those demands sound really, really reasonable. We can't have middle class white people with voting power agreeing with the Black Panthers. We better fuck it up. How do we do it? Let's get this street gang fighting with them. Let's arm this street gang and get them shooting the Black Panthers so the Black Panthers have to shoot back. Let's make white people think that the Black Panthers want to murder and kill them. And it was deliberate. And this isn't conspiracy. This isn't fucking conspiracy. You can look it up. COINTELPRO. I'm reading the New York Times. 1976, May 8th. Uh, One thing that sticks out for me from this article too, just because of the date, is it says the Panthers became the primary focus of the black nationalist hate groups, quote unquote, section of COINTELPRO by July 1969. And were the target of 233 of the 295 actions authorised against black groups, the report says. So what July I'm... July est- 1969. So what I'm establishing there is this Frank Kitson chap who'd been in Kenya 
and wrote the book Gangs and Counter Gangs 1960, it was being implemented not only by Kitson himself by 1971 in the north of Ireland, but studied and implemented by the FBI in America against the Black Panthers. And you can go on, you can, this, is, this isn't, uh, it's not a conspiracy or a secret to suggest that the FBI and the CIA were reading Frank Kitson's work. Of course they were. This was available to intelligence services. This was a publicly available book and it was for intelligence services and for the military. Because most importantly too, you have to look at when this is happening. Alright? The 60s and the 70s. And it's within the backdrop of the fucking Cold War. A much larger ideological battle where Britain and the US are you know, hugely powerful forces on, on the Western Bloc against the Soviets. And there was an ideological war going on whereby the West had to basically suggest, hold on, we are free, we are democratic, and in the West we have egalitarianism, everyone's equal, everyone is free, you're free from oppression, you can say what you want. But over in the East, the Soviets... You don't have any freedom of speech. There's secret police. If you spe- if you if you talk shit about the government, the secret fucking police will come in and they'll arrest you and they'll send you to the fucking gulag. So the narrative was in the West we are free. We are free and we have democracy. But the Soviet alternative, this communism, this socialism shit, you don't have any freedom there. But like like in in the Soviet uh, states, they had like the Stasi and these these secret police forces that would that you know that would actively and publicly oppress people. But this is the same fucking shit, lads. In the north of fucking Ireland in the seventies, the British army were dressing up in jeans, in jeans and leather jackets and murdering civilians, murdering people who were technically British citizens. That's fucking insanely repressive. In America, you've got the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, starting gang warfare against its own citizens. That's That's massively, massively repressive. Alright? But the thing is, it needs to be highly covert because then it goes against the larger narrative of we're in the West and we have democracy and we have freedom. So you get this snaky fucking cunt, Frank Kitson, with his gun. We, do you know what? In order to maintain power, we actually do have to be very oppressive and very violent. But we need to do it in a really sneaky way. And here's how. It's my book called Gangs and Counter Gangs. This is how you do it. So that the middle class who have voting power, they think, oh, the Black Panthers... Sure, there's nothing you can do with them. They're just violent, violent, violent black people. Savages in the ghettos. Look at them, they're fighting with a street gang. Oh, I, I liked them when they were giving free meals to people. And their, their, you know, their request to not uh, be brutalised p- by police. This sounded reasonable. But now they're fighting with street gangs, man. I don't think I support the Black Panthers anymore. Or then you've got someone living in London going, the IRA, they want, they want freedom from the British government. Oh, the Catholics want civil rights, is it? But they're all shooting each other, aren't they? The Catholics and the... They're in a civil war. I guess we should send the British army there to keep peace because they're all savages. And that's what this does. It's, it's, it's fooling people. 
So I'm about to get way more bizarre. Right? And everything I've mentioned up to this point, this this was at one point it was conspiracy. But it's not, because you can look it up, so it's not conspiracy. It was at one point conspiracy, but so this isn't... This is... When I talk about conspiracy theory, this is evidence-based conspiracy theory, even though it was once conspiracy, but you can look this shit up. Um, I'm about to get far more bizarre with this. I'm about to link Frank Kitson with Charles Manson and the Manson family murders. But before we do that, I think it's time to have a little ocarina pause to get a breather so an, an algorithmically generated advert is going to be digitally inserted right now and the advert will depend on, on what your viewing preferences are on the internet uh, so I'm going to play a, my Spanish clay whistle called an ocarina so that you're not surprised by the advert a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person, and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindby. There you go. That was the Ocarina Pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, right? This is a 100% independent podcast. I get the odd advertiser, but I'm not beholden to him, all right? It's not a podcast that's funded by a, a newspaper. It's not one of the ones that's funded by a radio station or a broadcaster. This is 100% independent, me in my studio in Limerick, and I'm able to do it because... Ye who are listening to it, to it, 
are paying me for the work that I'm doing. And the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast is what keeps this podcast going, right? So if you're listening to the podcast and you're enjoying it, just please consider giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month and you'll get five hours of content a month. It's a huge amount of work to do what I'm doing, but I fucking love doing it. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think I've ever been happier in my career. I fucking adore this podcast. Um, I'm doing what I truly want to do. I'm doing what TV stations would never commission me to do, what radio stations wouldn't commission. I'm able to do what I want to fucking do because you're paying me to do it. And it's it's an unbelievable privilege and I want to thank you for it. But yeah, if you're listening to this, pay me for the work I'm doing, please. If you can't afford to, that's fine. You can listen for free. Don't worry about it. But if you can't afford to, you're not only paying me for the work I'm doing, but you're paying for other people who can't afford to listen, basically. So everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. Everyone's happy. It's a model that's based on kindness and soundness. And it feels fantastic. So thank you so much if you are a patron. Like the podcast. Share the fucking podcast. Come watch me on Twitch three, time, three, three times a week. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. You can chat to me live. You can see me making music to video games. You know the crack. Alright. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Now. Back to the podcast and back to the roasting hot takes. So the 1960s in America, particularly on the West Coast, were a time of great social change and social upheaval, right? In California alone, like we'll say 1967 up until 70, you, you not only had like the Black Panthers in Oakland, the Black Panthers being a socialist black liberation group. You not only had them, but you also had the hippie movement in San Francisco. And you think of the hippie movement as just, you know, a lot of people with flowers in their hair, smoke and hash. It was that. But the hippie movement was a genuine attempt for young people, mainly white middle class young people, to try a different way of living other than capitalism. Hippies formed communes. Hippies were anti-racist. Hippies were anti-imperial. You know what I mean? It it was... 1960s was a weird time. Like, you also had... it, It was the height of the fucking Cold War. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which is the closest the world ever came to all out nuclear war. You had the Vietnam War which was a proxy war between America and Russia in Vietnam. You had the anti-war movement. The president of America, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. You know? Um, People were becoming very familiar with real violence on their television screens too. They were seeing the blood and violence of the Vietnam War played out in traumatic fashion on the news every night, which was a first for humanity. And... Left-wing groups, uh, left-wing ideology, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist ideology was seriously gaining traction in America, particularly the West Coast in the 60s. And this was a huge ideological threat to 
the powers that be in America. And it's why the FBI had a program called COINTELPRO, which was a deliberate attempt to dismantle, use, using the techniques of Frank Kitson, to dismantle groups like the Black Panthers and other left-wing groups. One incident that is seen as the the pain in the balloon of the 60s hippie, hippie summer of love San Francisco movement. One thing that's really seen as the, the dark end to it all is the 1969 Charles Manson murders, the Manson family murders. Basically, Sharon Tate, who was a famous Hollywood actor, and three of her friends were incredibly brutally murdered in their home in 1969 and it was it shook the world and they were murdered by the Manson family who were a hippie commune slash cult led by a fella called Charles Manson and everyone knows Charles Manson you know everyone has an idea of what I'm talking about but it really shook America and what people saw was hippies, drugs, murder and they murdered a famous, beautiful, blonde, pregnant, blonde white woman and her friends in the safety of their homes in the Hollywood Hills. It was utterly shocking and it, it wasn't just the murder of people, it attacked middle-class white American values to the core and immediately ended the summer of love. Darkness fell upon the summer of love at that moment. Now, when, when like, Manson and the family were put to trial and interviewed and asked about the, the motives of, you know, what, why, why, why did this happen? How, how did this hippie commune slash cult full of middle class white runaways how did they end up brutally murdering an actor and a pregnant actor and her family in her home and and stabbing them multiple times and doing real weird shit with their blood and, and really creating a scene when they were asked why it happened the, the official narrative was that Charles Manson who was the leader of this family who they saw as like they saw him as Christ and he was like a guru and he was your archetypal hippie with the long hair. Now this podcast isn't going to be about the Manson murders. What I'm interested in mainly is the motivation and what we've been told. They caught Charles Manson. They caught the members of his family. They were all put to jail. And when asked why did, you know, everyone in America was left. Why, why would Sharon Tate, this famous Hollywood actress and her friends be chopped up in their homes why why Manson and the family said we were trying to start a race war we were trying to make it look as if the Black Panthers did it we wanted to start a race war and that was the, the narrative that Charles Manson gave okay because they wrote the word when the murders happened they wrote the word pig on the door in Sharon Tate's blood and pig at the time would have been a phrase that was in, in, the, le- in the public lexicon associated with the Black Panthers in reference to the police. So Manson was deliberately trying to frame the Black Panthers. And this at the time in the media was written off as a crazy man. 
this crazy man, these crazy hippies on LSD were trying to frame the Black Panthers and that's all it is. These crazy hippies and their crazy drugs. Now here's what I'm interested in. I started off this podcast speaking about events in Belfast and Derry where the British Army under Frank Kitson would dress up uh, in plain clothes and murder civilians as a way to draw the IRA into sectarian conflict. And I also showed in 1976 in the New York Times how the FBI had a program called COINTELPRO where they were doing the exact same thing to the Black Panthers. They were trying to get the Black Panthers to fight with street gangs. They were discrediting the Black Panthers, doing very similar stuff to what the British Army were doing in the north of Ireland. So here's the hot take, and this is the bit that is a bit bonkers, but I think is plausible. To suggest that the Manson murders, Charles Manson and Charles Manson's family, that yes, they were hippies on LSD who were brutal murderers. Yes, they were. But if you look into connections with Charles Manson, if you look into the lives of Charles Manson's cult at that time and who they were connected with, you can draw a plausible link that shows that it's possible that somebody like either the FBI or the CIA were in connection with Charles Manson's family and possibly influencing or directing from a distance as part of this COINTELPRO FBI plan to dismantle left-wing groups and to target the Black Panthers. That's a roaring hot take, and I'm not saying it's true, but what I'd like to talk about, I want to show you the evidence that makes that theory plausible, and you can make up your own minds, okay? And with shit like this, I'm always saying, when, when do you go too far? What's too far? But then you have to say, in the north of Ireland, for instance... Is the British Army dressing up as, as in plain clothes and murdering civilians? Is that not too far? The FBI funding, giving guns to gangs to attack the Black Panthers, to murder people, to murder civilians. Is that too far? So, why is this too far? So here's the deal with Charles Manson. Charles Manson was a petty criminal with a very troubled childhood who spent the majority of his life in and out of prison in particular federal prison. In 1967, he left federal prison and his parole officer suggested to him that he go to the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco so that the the hippie movement or the, the free love might kind of chill him out. And as soon as Manson gets to San Francisco in 67, he goes from being a short-haired petty criminal to being a long-haired hippie guru, a Jesus-like figure, who is surrounded by a cult of women. This happens really, really quickly. And he's also using LSD and mind-expanding drugs. What's also interesting is Manson continued to be involved in petty crime when he was in San Francisco after getting out of prison. Now, if you're on parole and you commit a crime, you go back to jail. But when Manson was getting arrested, or members of his family were getting arrested for petty things, nobody was going to jail. He wasn't going back to prison which is really, really strange if you're on parole. And reports at the time suggest that police forces felt that Manson was protected in some way. Long before the Manson murders in 1969, his family were 
being caught with guns, being caught stealing, things like that. And when they got arrested, nothing happened, basically. Now, where am I, where am I drawing a connection? Where's this plausible evidence to suggest that Charles Manson might have had contact with government agents or the CIA or anything like that? Well, what you need to look at is a place called the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which was a free medical clinic set up in San Francisco in the late 60s. And Charles Manson used to go there quite a lot with his with his cult of, of women so that they could they were getting terminated, uh, pregnancies terminated. They were getting treated for STDs. If someone had a bad trip on LSD or pulled a whitener on hash, the hippies used to go to this Head Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and Charles Manson frequented it a lot with his family of girls. And there's a huge amount of evidence to suggest that when you look into people who worked in this clinic. Now, what was the Head Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and who was running it? It was being run by a fella called Dave Smith, who at the time was one of the foremost researchers in the world on the effects of psychedelic drugs, in particular LSD, on the human mind. Now, so the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, it's yes, it's a free medical clinic, but it also appears to be a front to research the, the, the effects of LSD on hippies who are coming there. There was also a fella involved in the the free clinic called Roger Smith and Roger Smith was also researching not only the impact of LSD on human behavior but also amphetamines he was involved in a thing called the amphetamine research project who was Roger Smith he was Charles Manson's parole officer so Charles Manson's fucking parole officer the person who is to basically watch over Charles Manson and decide if he should go back to prison is researching drugs, their impact on the human mind, and he's the person who told Manson when he left prison, go to the Haight-Ashbury, become a hippie, start hanging out at this free medical clinic, I'll look after you. So also, when I mentioned there that it appeared for a time in the late 60s that Charles Manson and his family were immune to prosecution when it came to petty crimes, right? The first, if, if, if Charles Manson robs a car or if he's caught with a firearm or if he's drunk and disorderly and a policeman arrests him, his parole officer, Roger Smith, is the person who finds out. And then Roger Smith says, Charlie, you've just broken parole. You're back to federal prison. Those are the rules. But this wasn't happening for Charles Manson. So Roger Smith, who's his parole officer, who's working at the free medical clinic, who is researching... LSD and its effect on human behaviour. What I'm getting at is that Roger Smith and David Smith in the the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. What what I'm getting at is that it, it is plausible and possible that the Manson family were a type of experiment to understand LSD, amphetamines, its impact on human behaviour. And this afforded the Manson family a certain amount of protection from prosecution in order for any research to continue going on. I know that sounds absolutely batshit mad, but the dots aren't too hard to connect. Charles Manson, in the space of a year, went from being a short-haired petty criminal to being a a cult-like, a guru-like cult leader surrounded by followers who was using LSD as part of his initiation process into his group. Everyone in the Manson family was regularly taking LSD. 
as a way to f- lose their egos. And it's possible that somebody who was researching LSD was instructing Charles Manson on how to use LSD to influence his followers and bring them into a cult-like mindset. And I think that could have been his parole officer, Roger Smith, who was fucking researching the exact same stuff. And then the, 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 free, the free medical clinic that Manson was frequenting is founded by another Smith, uh, David Smith, who is also heavily researching LSD, amphetamines, and how they impact human behaviour. Now, grand blind boy, how does the CIA or the FBI come into this? Well, David Smith, who was researching LSD, he was researching it for the National Institute of Mental Health, and then years later, what comes out? The National Institute of Mental Health in America was partly funded by the CIA specifically to research LSD and the impact of LSD on human behaviour. The CIA funded that because the CIA had been researching the effects of LSD going back to the late 1940s with a project known as MK Ultra. All right, again, that's not conspiracy. MK Ultra was real. The CIA were very interested in how substances like LSD could be used as a truth serum or as a way to control populations or to control people's behaviour and specifically the CIA were interested in how can LSD or can it be used to make someone an assassin okay that was conspiracy if you want to look up MKUltra do that's a real thing the CIA were doing this they were funding the National Institute for Mental Health so this, just so this doesn't get confusing, let's look at three facts, things that are, that are actual facts that happened, that are proven. In the time period that Manson was active, in the area that Manson was active, the CIA had a covert program called Operation Chaos. This was a deliberate plan to infiltrate left-wing groups, the Black Panther, uh, the Black Panthers, hippie organizations, to infiltrate them in any way and to use front organizations such as medical centers as a way to infiltrate them. Here's another fact. At the time, the CIA had an operation called MK Ultra, which was LSD research, amphetamine research, the deliberate research of LSD to control people, to make people into murderers or to make people do things they, they wouldn't normally otherwise do. MK Ultra was a real CIA program that was happening. Also, at the same time, in the sa- same area, you had COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO was an FBI program, which is what was used to infiltrate the likes of the Black Panthers. It was the thing that was inspired by Frank Kitson, the fella in the north of Ireland, to create warfare between left-wing groups, to infiltrate left-wing groups, to break them up by any means possible, even if it means breaking the law and inciting violence. These are all facts. And now on top of this, Charles fucking Manson and his murderous family of hippies are involved with his fucking parole officer is doing research on LSD, which we can show was CIA funded. This is mad, I know. So I know this is a lot, but we can now show that there is a CIA program interested in using LSD to create assassins, to control people's behaviour. We can connect this research to 
the Haight Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, we can collect it directly to Charles Manson's fucking parole officer. The dots are now connecting. Now, remember earlier I read out that 1976 New York Times report on the investigation into the FBI and their programme called COINTELPRO, which was to dismantle the Black Panthers using the techniques of Frank Kitson that were used in the north of Ireland. You also had the CIA at the same time who had a parallel uh, programme known as Project Chaos, which was the CIA's attempt to infiltrate left-wing groups, the Black Panthers, hippies, to sow seeds of dissent and create chaos. Um, I know all this sounds bonkers, lads, but you can look it up. You can look this stuff up. This, this, was, this is the shit the CIA were getting up to. This is what the FBI were getting up to. It's what the British Army were getting up to in the north of Ireland. This is all stuff you can look up. So, Manson becomes this... LSD type guru, all of a sudden he's able to influence people, he's able to have this huge cult where he's using LSD to initiate people into the cult. Let's look at the research of, the the LSD research of David Smith, who was running the Free Medical Centre alongside Roger Smith, who both of them are uh, researching LSD. David Smith's research was a continuation on from other research done in the 1950s by a fella called Calhoun. Now, Calhoun's research didn't have anything to do with LSD, but what he was studying were the behavior. Well, he was studying the behavior of rats, because rats, as a social group, are quite similar to human beings. And what Calhoun was researching was the impact of overcrowding on populations of rats. This research was for it was for sociology. It was for urban planning. They were trying to see. What would happen to a population of rats if you overcrowd them? And what happens to a population of rats if you don't overcrowd them? He was trying to create a rat utopia. Okay? As a way to go, right, if we do this with the rats, it does this work with human beings. And one thing he found is that when he overcrowded the rats in his research, really strange things started to happen. You no longer had happy rats with overcrowding. What you had was one dominant male emerged. And surrounded by this dominant male were adoring female rats who he would have as sexual partners. And then underneath that, you had these subservient male rats who also followed the dominant aggressive male rat. And this is what Calhoun in his research called the behavioural sink. That once you overcrowded the rats, something really nasty started to happen. And you also saw uncharacteristically psychopathic behaviour in certain rats. For no reason, certain rats would attack other rats in their sleep and rip their bodies apart and engage in very strange psychopathic behaviour. So David Smith, who was running the free medical clinic that Charles Manson was visiting, and he was working with Charles Manson's parole officer, who was also studying LSD and researching LSD. Smith's research, which you can show was CIA funded, was a continuation of Calhoun's research into rat populations and overcrowding and psychopathic behaviour. Except what Smith was doing was going, how can I look at Calhoun's research with the rats and now start injecting the rats with drugs? How can I inject the rats with LSD and with amphetamines to basically control the psychopathy, to control the behaviour of the rats in this behavioural sink? Now, that's the research he's doing and that's what happened with Charles Manson's family. 
So Charles Manson's cult became the rats. You had one dominant male surrounded by adoring females. You had a couple of males in the group who were doing what they were told and it ended in bloody psychopathic murder, just like the rats in Calhoun's research. Is it absurd to suggest that the Manson family were rats? That the Manson family were an experiment? That the Manson family were being experimented on with LSD? That somebody was trying to research and control their behaviour? That the person doing it was Manson's fucking parole officer? It's all looking really strange, lads. I just find that all really, really fucking weird. That the Manson family are so closely associated with a free medical clinic that you can trace to covert CIA funding into LSD and amphetamines and its study in human behaviour and how it can be used to control behaviour. And that Manson's parole officer was one of the lads doing the study. It just seems really fucking weird. Now this is the part of the podcast. You know I can talk about the Frank Kitson shit with the IRA. The deliberate attempt to create sense of chaos. I can talk about all that. And I can go right the evidence is there. This stuff. This is all connected things. It, this, this is a fact. It is a fact that Charles Manson farmed his family out of this free medical clinic. It is a fact that his parole officer was studying the influence of LSD on human behaviour and the person who ran the clinic was doing the same thing. It's a fact that you can connect the LSD research to something that was funded by the CIA. It is a fact that the CIA were, were actively studying the influence of LSD on human behaviour. It's a fact that the CIA had a thing called Project Chaos where they were deliberately trying to infiltrate hippie groups and hippie conyums and left-wing groups. It's a fact that the FBI had a thing called COINTELPRO at the same time which was designed to infiltrate the Black Panthers. And then it all culminates with Charles Manson's family Doing this real high profile murder on celebrities. Trying to blame it on the fucking Black Panthers. It just all sounds really fucking. There's a lot of dots there that really closely connect. And I find that fucking fascinating. And it's just. Taking it back to that that, that New York Times article from 1976. Which was. You know the Senate uh, committee on the operations of of the FBI and the CIA against the Black Panthers, it straight up states, the Panthers became the primary focus of the Black Nationalist Hate Group section of COINTELPRO by July 1969 and were the target of 233 of 295 actions authorised against black groups, the report says, July 1969. The Manson murders were August 1969. The Manson murders which were designed to frame the Black Panthers. They wrote pig on the door. The family themselves said it. What were you trying to do? We were trying to start a race war. We were trying to frame the Black Panthers. But the thing is, is that it was written off as crazy hippies. Charles Manson listened to the Beatles lyrics and had this crazy idea to frame the Black Panthers. 
So where's the hot take? Let's look at things that we know are true. The CIA had a programme called Project Chaos. Project Chaos, happened around San Francisco and Los Angeles, was deliberately designed to infiltrate left-wing groups and hippies and black nationalists to sow chaos. Right? That was the CIA. MK Ultra, again, this is a fact, was a CIA program to study the use of LSD in particular on controlling the behaviour of human beings and to create assassins. COINTELPRO was an FBI program happening at the exact same time, inspired by Frank Kitson to illegally sow dissent and to create war and to start fights and to start warfare against or between the Black Panthers. Charles Manson is with his family attending a fucking a free medical clinic that we can show is run by two LSD researchers who you can trace their research to CIA funding and one of them is Charles Manson's fucking parole officer and then Charles Manson and the family do a killing where they straight up say we were trying to pin it on the Black Panthers that's a lot of dots and I can't prove that they're connected that's a lot of dots that look similar though do you know what I mean and is it that absurd to suggest if if the, the work of Frank, Frank Kitson is used straight up, you can prove that the British military were shooting civilians in Belfast in 1971 and you can straight up prove that the work of Frank Kitson was, was being used by COINTELPRO and the FBI to get the Black Panthers fighting with gangs, armed warfare, which resulted in death. Also, worth wor- noting... Um, one week after the Manson murders, the murders of Sharon Tate, the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, all of Roger Smith's research, right, his research papers on the use of LSD and amphetamines in control and behaviour, a week after the Manson murders, the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic was burgled and what was taken was his research. That's a fact. Like, what the fuck is that? So, also, let's look at what what were the consequences of the Manson murders? The consequences of the Manson murders is it ended the summer of love. Hippies became dangerous. Hippies were no longer harmless white kids who wanted free love and believed in a fairer society and wanted to end the Vietnam War. Now hippies were deranged drug addled murderers who will come into your home and chop you up to bits this this was the goal of project chaos it was the goal of COINTELPRO it's straight out of the fucking Frank Kitson rule book you know it, it they didn't succeed in, in pinning on the Black Panthers but it succeeded in making hippies look unreasonable unfollowable and dangerous it worked what else did the Manson murders do it introduced into the popular lexicon of America what was known as the satanic panic which is something that lasted in the 1970s and the 1980s of Amer- in America American people became irrationally terrified that there were secret satanic groups 
performing human sacrifices or trying to corrupt and influence young people. And this all started with the Manson murders. It was seen as the actual work of Satan. It was seen as satanic. Okay? Collectively, this moved the American public into a very frightened state of mind. It drew people towards fundamentalist Christianity. It paved the way for Reagan and we'll say the 1980s that was dominated by American family values. You, you know, this white American Christian family values and evangelists. This was all off the backdrop of satanic panic. Drugs lead to Satan. Rock music and long hair lead to Satan. There was, they used to, parental groups in the 70s and 80s used to listen to music backwards and used to think that lyrics backwards were about Satan. Charles Manson said that he was inspired by a Beatles song called Helter Skelter, that the Beatles song told him to commit these murders. So this attack on culture and youth culture of long hair, drugs, hippies, anything alternative was seen as satanic and the Manson murders brought that in, that fear in. And when you have a fear like that, people start to behave themselves. They're no longer interested in left-wing ideas. They're no longer interested in... uh, free love in liberalizing attitude towards drugs or sex or sexuality they want god christ and rules and that's what the late 70s and 80s was in america now let's bring it back to belfast 1974 and i know at this point you're thinking i sound like a madman i sound mad nothing that i'm saying cannot be looked up and researched so belfast early 70s the satanic panic that happened because of the Manson murders also makes it way, makes its way to Ireland and to Britain. British intelligence in the early 1970s, when, whenever an IRA shooting happened in Belfast or in Derry, British intelligence would go in afterwards, after the shooting, and they would paint pentagrams on the wall or they would leave candles around the place. British intelligence was trying to make IRA shootings they were trying to make them look satanic. I'm not talking out of my arse. Look look it up. Type into Google. Type into fucking Google. IRA satanic panic. And look up the Guardian article that shows that British intelligence were deliberately trying to make the IRA look like they were involved in satanic rituals. Here's a, a direct quote from Captain Colin Wallace who was a British Army soldier in the 70s in Belfast. Wallace told Jenkins that they deliberately stoked up a satanic panic from 1972 to 74, even placing black candles and upside-down crucifixes in derelict buildings in some of Belfast's war zones. The Army press officers leaked stories to newspapers about black masses and satanic rituals taking place from Republican Ardine in North Belfast to the loyalist-dominated east of the city. So this is, this is three years after the Manson murders, which was a global thing. And it goes on to say that Wallace admitted that the psychops branch of military intelligence exploited public fear of Satanism. Wallace said that by whipping up devil-worshipping paranoia, they created the idea that the emerging paramilitary movements and the murder campaigns that they were engaged in had unleashed evil forces across Northern Irish society. So there you have it. The British trying to make the Ra look like... They were Manson family Satanists. You can look all this shit up. I'm just the man with the hot takes, lads. And I know this stuff makes me sound bizarre. 
But is this not really excite? Does this not excite you? I find this shit really, really exciting. I'm not that interested in fucking conspiracy theories that are going around now. But shit like this, where you can actually look at evidence and you can see things that were unearthed and you've got people admitting things, that's fucking fascinating. And you can look all this stuff up. There's nothing that I mentioned here that you can't look up and find the hard evidence to show that it's true. Where it gets... Where, where it starts getting messy is when you connect the dots of all those things. That's what you can't really prove, is the connection of the dots, you know? And that's what this, this week's hot take is about, connecting those dots. A huge amount of all the Frank Kits and stuff I did myself. I, I tried, I, when I researched, I try and get as much newspaper reports from the time, original sources like Frank Kitson's fucking uh, PDFs of, of uh, gangs and counter gangs. Huge amount of the Manson stuff there. I got to give credit to a journalist called Tom O'Neill. Tom O'Neill wrote a book called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the 60s. And Tom O'Neill is a journalist who spent 20 years of his life investigating all that shit about Manson at the Free Medical Clinic, about his parole officer and the LSD. If if, if you found that part interesting, read the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill because it's fucking fascinating it goes into that stuff in great detail alright I hope you enjoyed that I fucking love doing that I love a roasting hot take I'll be back next week don't know what about yurt imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.